Black History Always is a new podcast in partnership with The Undefeated that takes a deep dive into the stories of now and tomorrow from a black aperture that empower and inspire. That's Black History Always. Listen wherever you find your podcasts. ESPN Plus subscribers, join an ESPN Plus Fantasy Football League now for a chance to win $250,000. Sweepstakes is U.S. only, 18 or older, no purchase necessary. Visit ESPN.com slash ESPN Plus football rules for full details and official rules. Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod here with Monty Williams, the National Basketball Coaches Association Coach of the Year this past season and the coach of the Western Conference champion Phoenix Suns. Monty, how are you? I'm doing well, Woj. Uh, Thanks for having me on and it's pretty cool to be on your podcast and I enjoy listening to it when I get a chance to and hopefully we can have a a sane conversation, which is pretty hard <laughs> when you're talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's not the case. And it's funny. I remember we've, we've done a couple of these, but I remember uh, being in Phoenix with you. I think there was a workout in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, it was some kind of a pre-draft workout and we were both there. And I think we taped one right when you took the job. And it feels like it's been one sprint blur. It was pre-pandemic and we've all just sprinted through this. I, I, I'm curious, Monty, coming off the finals and how you're supposed to feel in the aftermath. And I'm guessing that you're still thinking about game six, 77 to 77, tied going into that fourth quarter. Is that like sort of the, is that where your mind still stays or stays or do you, can you see the bigger picture of of the whole run, or are we still too close to it? No, I think you're spot on. Um, I've gone back to that moment a ton um, the past few weeks, trying to figure out you know anything that I could have done um, in that moment because all you have to do is win one quarter, which is a tough task on the road against a. Uh, the best team in the NBA and um, you go through a ton of mental gymnastics and and try to figure out something you could have said or a play you could have run or an adjustment. And, um, you know, that, that's something that will probably stay with me for a long time. But the the people that I've talked to who've been in that situation, um, when I've talked to them, they, you know, they talk about the natural process that they've gone through. And that was a part of it, you know, going back to those moments. Um, I go back to uh, our game three preparation uh, to get ready uh, mentally and emotionally for that game. Uh, I felt like um, I've probably overthought it um, in regard to the preparation just because we lost. If we'd have won that game, I probably wouldn't have thought about it at all. But because we lost, you know, I just ruminate about it a ton. And, um, you know, the irony is, you know, we beat them four times in a row. They beat us four times in a row. They just did it at the right time. <laughs> and, you know, that's something that um, as, a, as a coach and as a leader, um, we'll, 
bother me for a long time, but I think it will also drive me um, to be better in those moments if I'm afforded that opportunity again. Monty, they had Giannis playing at a level I'm not sure we've ever seen him play at, and that says a lot given he was a two-time MVP an all-defensive player, first-team All-NBA, all the things he's done. Uh, but he certainly took it to a level in the finals uh, offensively, certainly defensively. He was all over the court making plays. But And I know you're, you, you are not an excuse maker, but you know Chris Paul has had wrist surgery since the season ended, and he wasn't himself. And he played through it. He didn't make excuses. He didn't lean on it as a crutch. None of you did. But it is a factor, isn't it? It is. I mean, you, you think about um, all of that stuff when your emotions settle. Uh, but in the moment, um, you know, we, we've always been, at least for me, and I, and I got this from Tony Dungy uh, when I've listened to him and read his books, you know, you have to have the mindset of being no excuses, no explanations. Uh, the bottom line is you have to get the job done. Um, you know, people didn't know that Book um, was dealing with a hamstring uh, deal in game three. And he got all kinds of flack for what he couldn't do. And, and what people didn't understand was he was basically out there playing on one leg. And those guys, because they are tough um, and, and never want to rely on um, excuses, wouldn't say anything. And that part bothered me because... I heard all the stuff that was being said about uh, Devin and Chris in the finals. And at the same time, I'm sure if you talk to the staff with the Bucks, they would tell you that, you know, Chris was dealing with this and Giannis was dealing with this and um, they just happened to win. But I, you know, the, the injury piece, the um, especially the deal with Chris's wrist, the, that happened in the Clippers series and he never made one excuse about it. Um, but that's who he's been for a long, long time. And I'm sure, you know, all the stuff that he heard is going to drive him in his workouts this summer. And I'm sure Devin feels the same way. You, you mentioned preparation, Monty, uh, that preparation for game three. What is it like as a head coach and, and, and for a coaching staff to go through the gauntlet of uh, first round conference semis, conference finals, NBA finals, the constant, the decisions, the little decisions you have to make on the way to the big ones, which is, I guess it's a lot of, do we continue to stay with what we've done, what we believe in, that we can execute it better, or do we need to veer off and maybe do it differently? There's a thousand of those decisions every day, I'm sure, as a head coach. What is that? What did you learn about playoff coaching and how you make decisions uh, when you go through a playoff run like you did that came within you know one game of winning uh, an NBA championship? Yeah, I think it's um, you, you can't understand or quantify the level of those decisions, uh, their impact on you know your team, the staff, the organization, uh, those are pretty heavy decisions. Um, and until you go through it, you don't understand it. You know, in the regular season, 
you can make decisions in a game and it could help you win one game or lose one game. In the playoffs, one decision can change a series. And those were the things that were on my mind as we went through the playoffs, uh, as we made adjustments against the Lakers and then Denver and then um, the Clippers. You know, there were decisions that we made that helped us. There were decisions that we made that didn't work out as well, but we still won the series. I think the the thing that weighs on you is when you make decisions and you lose the series, um, those are the ones that haunt you and, um, you know, they keep you up at night. Um, but I'm mindful that, you know, our staff made a lot of good decisions uh, over the course of a series. You're going to make some bad ones. And most of them, most people don't even know about. <laughs> they go unnoticed uh, over the course of, you know, four rounds in the playoffs. And, you know, I think you have to be willing to deal with whatever comes your way if you're listening, uh, whether it be criticism or adulation, you have to be able to handle that in a healthy way. Um, I was grateful for the experience, Woj. Uh, that, that's what I go back to. Um, even as bad as it hurts, I was grateful that um, I had a chance to um, coach in the finals I had a chance to win and um, I'm, I'm praying um, that I'll get a chance to do it again this gets lost along the way that that first round series against the Lakers <laughs> a lot there was a lot that happened there was a lot that happened leading up into it where here you are a two seed in the west which is a heck of accomplishment for any team to, to be able to ride through the regular season, be a two seed. And all of a sudden you're, you're observe it. You see people are jockeying around um, to, to maybe try to play you. You know, there was a sense of, well, Phoenix is still really young. And if you're getting, maybe that's the one we could get in the playoffs because there's still a, a lot of young players on that team. And history tells us that young players don't always advance in the playoffs. And then Lakers get in the play in and all of a sudden you play them and to me, even in game one, you've got this big lead. You have taken it to them. And then all of a sudden, Chris Paul goes down. And in that moment, you don't know if you've just lost Chris Paul for, for the postseason. Yeah, it was, there was a lot going on. Um, you know, we, we see and saw um, what may have been teams, and I say may, uh, jockeying for position to maybe play us or play someone else they thought they could beat. It was nothing we could do about that. Um, the thing that we always felt, if, if we competed at a high level, defended and took care of the ball, all the things we talk about every single day, we'll give ourselves a chance to win. And we've proven that, you know, we can beat any team in the NBA. The only team we didn't beat uh, was Brooklyn this season. Uh, at least that's how I remember it. And so from that standpoint, those were things that we could not control. But, uh, you know, I'd be lying if, if I didn't admit that you use it as motivation, but not against one particular team. I think you use it as motivation to, you know, be the best that you can be so that you can beat, you know, whomever you're going to face. And then when the stuff happened with Chris in game one, um, I think the thing that probably gave me pause was when I got over to him and I saw the look on his face. Um, it, it wasn't the typical pain look. It was a look of, you know, I don't know what's going on. 
And that's, you know, if you've coached or played or been in those moments and you've seen a guy or you've had that feeling, you're not quite sure if you're going to be able to play again. And so that part, um, you know, shook me up a little bit. And then you have to turn the page and get right back to your team and, and try to get everybody back together. But I think, Woj, the, the season that we had with the COVID testing and the, and the number of injuries that every team faced this year, it, it helped you get ready for those moments because, you know, different guys in, in our um, economy, you know, campaign had played big minutes this year. Um, Etwan Moore was able to step up and play point guard and off guard for us. Devin played some point guard for us. Um, now you can't fill Chris's shoes, but I, I certainly feel like those moments helped us to navigate that um, when he wasn't at 100%. And I think part of having experience in the playoffs, Monty, I, I guess is, you know, you have players who've been through it and can sort of maybe not ride the roller coaster of public sentiment because all of a sudden it's, oh, what a great matchup for the Lakers. They're going to drill. They'll drill the Suns. And then you blow them out in game one. Oh, well, hey, the Suns are maybe, maybe they're really good. And then all of a sudden, ah, they're up 2-1. Chris doesn't look the same. Lakers are going to cruise. And then AD goes down with the groin. Chris starts to play better. And, and there's this roller coaster that if your players are listening to it, you're you're going to win it easy. Oh, you're going to get blown out. That you've got to manage, right? Uh, you can tell everybody, don't listen to the outside. But, I mean, you walk in the locker room, you see guys staring at their phones. You, you know they're listening. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure what they're looking at, though. I mean, there's, there's times when I walk in and guys are on their phone. And our team is pretty respectful about the phones in the locker room. Um, I've been in locker rooms before where uh, the phone thing can become an issue, but our guys um, have a respect for our staff. So when we walk into the locker room, you know, they, they put their phones up and, and give us their attention at the same time. I'm not quite sure, nor do I always want to know what they're looking at. Um, a lot, a lot of the time, I think they could be getting information from a family member, from a, a, an outside coach that helps them with their games. Over the course of our season, I've seen uh, Chris and Jay and Etwan uh, and Langston help our young guys navigate all of those things because uh, for the most part, Chris, Jay and Etwan had been there and, and knew uh, the number of distractions that could pose a problem um, for any team in, in that moment. But, you know, we've always you know, we say the same things that other coaches say. You got to block out the noise, but human nature, you tend to listen to it no matter how much you try to block it out. So I think you just have to become a pro at, you know, understanding what's important and what's not important. Monty, you mentioned the leadership of Chris Paul and to think about your relationship with him, starting in New Orleans, where you're in your first year, he's headed into his last year and really kind of has a foot out the door, ready to be traded to coming back all these years later and reuniting at very different points in your lives, your careers in Phoenix. What was and what has been the evolution of that relationship? Well, there, there was so much that happened, and, and I don't want to take too many liberties here and share too much, but I, I will say um, when I got there, 
Chris and David had been through a lot, David West, and they, they were pretty straight with me and pretty straight with um, our staff that, you know, they were going to compete and, and, and be pros and, and do everything that we wanted them to do. They were just, you know, moving on. And I was okay with that because of how they handled it. And, and I mean that with um, all due respect and honesty. Like I, I never felt like, um, you know, they were one foot out the door or, or, you know, on their way to something else. You know, we made the playoffs that year. Uh, unfortunately, D West tore his ACL, which really put a, put us in a tough spot. But thankfully we had Carl Landry and he stepped up and played well. But Chris and I, um, we had a great working relationship. There were days where I was, you know, coaching him a bit too hard or, you know, being a typical me in those moments. But our relationship um, never changed. And, and in fact, when he left, um, we stayed in contact. Um, he always watched us play. Uh, when we played against each other, we always talked in the hallway. Um, I'd see him at USA basketball events. Um, our relationship didn't change. It, it, it got stronger. And the story that, um, you know, when people ask me about Chris and, and our time away from each other, I think the thing that sums it up was my daughter was working um, with the league at an all-star uh, break. She was basically doing grunt work and doing all the stuff that interns do. And Chris had heard that my daughter was in the back uh, taking care of some stuff. And he left a group that he was with to go in the back and find my daughter to introduce himself and, and, and or reintroduce himself and say, hey, you know, Lael, I remember you when I was in New Orleans. And I just remember my daughter telling me that Chris Paul sought her out, you know, at the All-Star game. And, and that tells you what our relationship was like um, at USAB. My son Elijah was there with me when I was an assistant coach and, and Chris would be one of the only guys that would go over to Elijah and shake his hand. And Chris would come back to me and say, coach, you'd be proud of him. He looked me right in the eyes when he shook my hand. And so our relationship has always been strong. At the same time, we were competing against each other. And so, you know, that, that can be a bit different. But then to have the opportunity to uh, coach him again, Woj, like, you never know if that's going to happen again. And I'm not ashamed to say or tell anybody, you know, the most success I've had as a coach has been when Chris Paul has been um, my starting point guard. And so I'm not that, you know, I'm not that bright, but I'm smart enough to know that Chris helps you win a lot of games and helps your program. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand slams, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECT-TV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. 
Monty, when you think back of that time in between leaving New Orleans and becoming a head coach again in Phoenix, and a lot happened, certainly a great deal in your personal life, your professional life. And as you thought about, you would go interview for jobs and you'd get a sense of the questions people were probing you on, the things they wanted to know, the doubts they had about the doubts they had about you mm-hmm. as a head coach. Mm-hmm. Were you too rigid? Um, were you, I think you heard them all. I think you would hear them in the questions people <laughs> asked you. And I think you would hear it w- whether they talked to your agent, Spencer Breaker, or talk to uh, others around you when they do their research uh, on you. What was that sort of journey like for you? And I am going to stay true to who I am and the principles I believe in that is my way to coach that works for me, but also are there tweaks to it I have to make? And yeah. and I think you went through a lot of that in between New Orleans yeah. and, 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 and Phoenix. Yeah. I mean, what would you, you know, you, there's a lot there in respect to the narratives that were uh, going around about me and, and <laughs> my coaching style and, things I did or said, um, ultimately. There was a lot of embellishment. There were things I was shocked at some of the things I heard. I said, that's, I knew that wasn't accurate. Then there's some of that stuff you have to, some fires you have to put out in that way because things take on a life of their own. Yeah, they do. And there's only so much you can control. Um, I would have people in the know walk up to me and tell me what they'd heard. And, you know, those things bothered me because, not because people said them, uh, they, they bothered me because of the people that believed them. You know, Th- those are the times where you're like, well, people don't know me and that's okay. I- I'm not here to be known by everybody. I-, I only wanted to coach and go home. I never wanted to, you know, do all the stuff that comes with coaching. But ultimately, Woj, um, if the players and if people that I work with felt that way about me, it's on me to um, help them understand who I really am. Um, And I also have to admit that, you know, in in some of those instances, they could be right. And in some of them, they were. And, you know, that's humbling when you have to, you know, judge yourself and be straight about how you did certain things. And, you know, I had to get to a point where, I had to learn how to be effective over right. Um, there were times where I felt like I was right in certain situations, but sometimes when you're right, you're not that effective. And I wanted to be an effective coach. And I hadn't had enough success or won enough to um, overcome that. And so I think the thing that probably helped me change um, and grow was um, when I lost my wife and I realized you know, there's certain things that are, are much more important than than being right. And um, I knew how badly I wanted to be a head coach again. I knew how much I love the gym. And, and, you know, it's the only place I really want to be um, is in the gym. But I also had to figure out um, how was I going to, you know, improve so that I can be effective. I can be or approach the leader that I need to be. And um, when you hear things about um, – <laughs> yourself, especially when you're a head coach, um, you know, it bothers you. 
because I know my intention and I know how badly I wanted to serve and love and, and, and help guys get paid and win games and all the stuff that we get to do. And yet it wasn't coming off that way. And so that was the part that bothered me. It was like, man, I, this is what I really wanted to do. And somehow, some way, it didn't come off that way. And the only person that I could look at, even though I felt like a lot of those things weren't true, the only person that I could affect and change was myself. What was an example, Monty, of one that whether it was former players of yours or staff, you went back, however you look back at something and, and, and you seem pretty sure you were right about it. And you look back and said, I'm going to do that. I've got to do that differently. Was there one that stands out where you, or maybe took you the longest to get to, to yeah. accept, I'm going to maybe do that differently? Well, I talked to a ton of our players, um, you know, after I had left New Orleans and I was in different positions as an assistant and then in management in San Antonio. And I was traveling around scouting and, you know, going to college campuses and going to NBA games. And I'd run into former players and I, I asked them, I said, Hey, you know, I want you to shoot me straight, you know, tell me what you, you thought and um, don't feel like you're going to hurt my feelings. I want to know. And it was pretty consistent. Uh, there were guys who were like, coach, we loved you. Uh, we knew what you were trying to do, but there were days where you made us feel small. And that was the part that bothered me um, because I didn't know that, you know, the things that I was saying or the things that I did made the guys feel that way. And it changed um, because it was so consistent. It changed my prayer about the next job that if I were afforded that opportunity that I would get, I, I would ask God in my prayer time to give me a job that I was excited about and people that were working with us and playing for us would be excited to come and play for us and, and work for us. And when you hear that about yourself from the you know, players you love and respect, um, the only thing you can do is change and, and grow and, and try to figure out ways that you can grow. And I, I'll never forget, um, we were in a meeting, you know, I was in San Antonio and I would go from management meetings to coaching meetings. Uh, RC and Pop gave me the opportunity of a lifetime to work in both areas. You know, they gave me a title that was way above my, uh, anything that I could have ever imagined. But uh, for the most part, Woj, I was in every area of the organization. And I was in a coaching meeting one day and and Pop said, um, he said, look, if the rules stifle talent, you need to change the rule. And it was like an epiphany. You know, I, I thought like, you know, I thought I had like theme music and somebody had a harp playing it. And I was looking around the room to see if anybody caught it. And nobody really like had that look on their face like I did. And I realized that it was for me and he wasn't talking to me but it was something that really impacted my heart. And I looked at, you know, I had a chance to look at myself and thought about the rules and the things that I was trying to do. If those things were stifling the talent, then it was on me to change the rule, not diminish the talent. And that was a moment for me um, when I wasn't in a position of coaching, uh, certainly not as a head coach, that helped me to reevaluate and hopefully grow from where I was as, as a coach to hopefully where I'm, I'm approaching now. 
Yeah, and, and where you're approaching now, Monty, is people are out doing coaching searches this offseason, and, and what I heard a lot of with the people hiring coaches and with candidates who were interviewing for jobs is we want the next Monty Williams. And I think it's just so ironic that <laughs> the, the Monty Williams was struggling to sell Monty Williams for, for a short period of time in these processes. And I think your last, when you went to Philly, you left San Antonio and you went to Philly with Brett Brown for a year. And then it felt it changed. You were back on the bench in Philly. And now, you know, there were multiple teams. And I think you had multiple opportunities to be a head coach. You weren't just looking for one offer. There, there were, it, it changed. But all of a sudden, I think the league, you know, seven of the eight coaches hired this offseason are African-American. Five were first-time head coaches, uh, just like you were coming from Portland to New Orleans um, a while ago. And not just ex-players, but also some coaches, Some which I think is even more progress, and maybe people don't talk about as much, some young African-American coaches who were not prominent ex-players uh, who became first-time head coaches. Jamal Mosley in Orlando, uh, Wes Unsell Jr. in Washington, uh, who, you know, who played at the collegiate level, Jamal played professionally, but we're not NBA players. They didn't have, they weren't a first round pick like you or, or, or uh, maybe a hall of famer like Chauncey Billups is going to be. And, and it felt like something's changed in the last year. Um, that, that I'm, and I think your success and the success of Ty Lue and the success of, uh, you know, Nate McMillan getting another opportunity and, and making a great run with that Hawks team um, it shouldn't take this, but but perhaps it did. But it felt like it, it was a different day in the NBA hiring circles this season. Yeah, I was just grateful to see those guys uh, get their opportunities. Um, and, and if, you know, my f- failures and, and growth keep those guys from making the same mistakes I've made, I- I'm – I'm humbled that I can be a part of that that process and that equation. Um, and I still, you know, feel like guys like Sam Cassell and Darvin Ham, um, you know, are guys that I'm like, man, I wish those guys can get a shot. Uh, Kevin Young, uh, Darko Rykovich, you know, the the thing that I, I'm I'm impacted by Woj is I just want all of us to be on the same plane. You know, I'm I'm not pro African American in that regard. I want all races and all coaches to have the same opportunities and the same shot. You know, that that's why for me the inter- interview process is so important. Um, when teams go through a quick process and don't talk to uh, a number of coaches, whether they're black, white, or brown. Um, it hurts you as an assistant because what I've learned over the course of my interview processes that is that you learn about yourself when you get a chance to go through it. And when teams don't allow for a number of people to sit in front of them and get questioned and, and go through the angst of preparation and, and sitting in front of an owner, you can't grow. And I'll, I'll never forget um, when I was going through my first set of interviews and um, I had interviewed with a few teams and, and Steve Kerr was the general manager in Phoenix. 
and <laughs> they called me and they, they, you know, Steve wanted to talk and I was, you know, in my thirties and I, I was, you know, I was dumber than I am now, but I thought I knew everything. And I talked to Steve and uh, he said, Hey, you know, let, let's talk again. And the next time I talked to Steve, he said he was, you know, it was the best conversation I've ever had in an interview process. He, he just told me straight up. He said, Mont, you're not ready for this job. I'm not even going to put you through this. You're not ready for this job. And it was so humbling, but it was true. Um, I was, you know, mid thirties, uh, was in Portland and we were having some success. My name was whatever it was. And Steve was straight and honest, respectful. And he just told me the real deal. Well, that part of the process allowed for me to grow and his honesty and, and being straight with me. And, and maybe because we had a relationship coming through the San Antonio program, I competed against Steve. Maybe that helped him uh, have that conversation with me. But, you know, I'm being long winded. But the point is, unless you have those opportunities to talk to people on the phone or sit in front of an owner or sit in front of a GM and get blasted with questions, how else are you going to grow? And so I, I just see, you know, I'm grateful for the opportunities that Jamal and Ime and, and Chauncey are getting, but also feel like there's so many more guys that aren't being afforded the opportunity to just go through the process of talking to teams so that they can grow. Monty, head coaching in the NBA <laughs> and the autonomy head coaches have anymore, what they're really in control of. And I think you have, I can count maybe on maybe two hands, no more than two hands. I think coaches who really have autonomy to do it exactly the way they want to do it. And in many more instances, it's becoming driven much more by the front office. It's being driven by ownership, playing time, who you're going to play, style of play. Uh, you know, certainly roster and all that is, um, you know, GM's going to have more say in that in most cases. Is it, is that harder as a head coach to have? Is that harder to get your arms around? And are coaches generally now a little bit more dictated to than you remember, maybe even in your days as an assistant or certainly as a player in the league, which was, you know, ways back? Yeah, long time ago. You know, I hear the stories about um, some of the mandates that some coaches receive. And I have to be perfectly straight. Um, well, which I, I've, I don't deal with that at all. But one of the reasons why I don't is because, one, I don't feel like I have all of the answers. And so James and myself, we talk a ton about the team, about the style. Um, and I'll ask him, you know, about things we're doing because James played. Uh, he was under really good coaching. I coached James in Portland. Um, but then I talked to Robert a lot. Um, you know, I'll be home you know, getting work done at, at a random time, random day during the season. And I'll get a call from Robert and we'll just talk about the team. And I think the thing that's helped me, um, I, I don't think I would have wanted to talk when I was in New Orleans. I didn't want to listen. Um, I didn't want to have anybody have any input on the program other than me and the staff. And that was pretty selfish. And I was trying to, to win some stupid award and get the credit. Now, as I move forward and, and 
as I said, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be effective over right. I'm probably more willing uh, to listen and, and we have a ton more conversations. And I think that may help with, you know, not receiving those types of mandates um, from, you know, sports science people who tell you how long you can practice and how long you, you can play a guy. Um, you know, you listen to that stuff, but I've not received that since I've been here in Phoenix. And um, it's a blessing. I don't take it for granted. But I also feel like, you know, we're trying to do all of this together. But you you do hear it from your peers, though, when you guys oh, yeah. talk in private moments. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've, I've heard some things. And, you know, I, I can't. Those are tough conversations to have because usually, you know, you're talking to someone that is a bit younger than you or doesn't have as much experience. And I don't want to add more wood to the fire. So I tend to just listen and try to encourage. Um, but I have heard some of the stories and, um, you know, I, I feel for those, those coaches. I don't think the people, I don't think anybody in the organization has a bad intention, but I don't think that, um, People understand that when you're in this position, one, being a head coach in the NBA is pretty lonely. Um, you're in the middle of so many uh, areas of the organization, and and you're you're usually the one <laughs> feeling the ire or the getting the mud slung at you from time to time. But even in that mud, I don't think it's from a bad intention. I just think it's just hard to understand what it's like to be in this position. And I, and I know that because of what I went through in San Antonio and pop and RC allowing me to, to work in so many different areas of the organization, or at least have discussions with those groups. Monty, do you take some satisfaction out of, listen, when you're coaching in the NBA finals and you're coaching in the conference finals and you're being mic'd up and everybody's watching the games, and people get to hear how you talk to your team. They can see a pregame talk. They can see a postgame. They can see it in a huddle. And that how you coach, it trickles down and young coaches see it. And people who are going to hire see it. And they see that it's effective. And that you don't have to, you don't have to be cursing out a player. You don't have to be uh, personally critical of somebody to be constructively critical and that maybe it helps not just in the NBA or college, but maybe at the high school level, maybe at the youth level that people say, well, Monty Williams is having success with that style of coaching and, and I'm learning from it. And that's something I'm going to take. Do you ever think about that? Do you think that it, that it has an impact on not just at your level, but, but levels below you? You know, Woj, I just, I haven't um, had time to process that part. I've heard people um, say things, you know, about the way that I coach, or I've gotten letters from people or emails, even text messages from different coaches um, from all levels of basketball. Um, but to, you know, I mean, you've been around me a long time, Woj, it ain't. I ain't all that. I don't have all a lot going on. I mean, but it feels good though, doesn't it, to get those to get those letters or messages that that you, you like that that's something for me to emulate. I mean, it it does, but not in a way that it would have felt 
when I first started in, in New Orleans. I think I would have, you know, shamefully been patting myself on the back um, a little bit, if not a lot of bit. Um, now, as I've hopefully grown, I feel a level of gratitude that I get to coach again and that I get to have uh, these moments with our players and that I get to be a part of the process of coaches who are younger than I am who say, hey, man, I, I really appreciate whatever it is. Um, I, I feel that now. Um, I'm hopefully not in a place of pride or arrogance thinking that I figured it out because that's certainly not the case. Um, I do feel um, I do feel like I need to contribute to um, the growth of other coaches in the same way that Pop and, and Doc and Nate and Billy Donovan and Rick Carlisle um, have contributed to me. Um, I have so much respect for a guy like Spo and his stamina, you know, the ability to, you know, every single year have that kind of pressure and, and have won it all. Um, I have so much respect for, um, you know, someone like Coach Sloan, who I, I had conversations with at Summer League and we would sit and talk about, you know, our families, uh, farming, fishing. And then, you know, he had no idea that he was pretty much my idol um, because I knew how much Pop respected him and their program. And so I, I would find any opportunity I could to just sit up under Coach Sloan at Summer League and just listen to him. And so I do feel um, a responsibility to, you know, talk to coaches who are in the video room uh, player development coaches, you know, the guys who may not get a chance to talk to a head coach or spend time with somebody in my position. I do feel that that's my responsibility. I remember talking to you, I think it was early September. I was still in the bubble. You think the Suns, you had just left. You had just gone home from there. And John Thompson had passed. And I think we texted about it and I was writing something about it and I, and I called you and I will remember the emotion that you talked with and you grew up in the DC, Virginia area when Georgetown was at its height and John Thompson was as big of a figure as there was maybe anywhere in coaching and the doors that I think you felt he opened and, and many coaches do uh, not just for players, but, but for coaches, for, for, black coaches in college basketball, the NBA, and uh, how emotional that made you. And I, I thought about some of that. We were in Phoenix for the finals, and I remember we did a TV thing at halftime, and you know, you were right behind me coaching, and we were talking about seven of the eight new coaches being uh, African-American. And I just, uh, to me, that it wasn't that long ago, um, last September, I guess just about a year ago. Yeah. And... The impact John Thompson had on you, uh, it, it it stayed with you. Yeah, Coach Thompson was a um, he was an icon. He was a a, a pillar uh, in that community. You know, I, I'm from Oxon Hill, Maryland, PG County, DMV. Like that's that's where I'm from. And if you grew up in that area in the '80s. Um, you know, the, the, the thing that you watched on TV more than anything was Georgetown basketball. 
Um, you know, we had Maryland basketball and they had Lefty Drizel and then they had Bob Wade. But Coach Thompson was he might as well have been the president if you were a, a basketball player from that area. And, you know, Patrick Ewing was the vice president. You know, that, that was just the way it was. And it wasn't just about the basketball. You know, I, I was young, but I was I was old enough to know that he stood for more than just winning games. You know, I remember when there was a proposition, academic proposition that wasn't fair. You know, he walked out because he just felt like that wasn't fair and it didn't put us all on the same playing field. Um, I remember you know, him wearing the sweater with Lou Carnesecca. Um, you, you knew that he was standing up for more than just winning games. But then when you listen to the older people back then talk about Coach Thompson, um, you understood that there was a reverence for him that was uncommon. And then I, I started playing in high school. And the thing that drove me was he didn't recruit me. Um, he recruited another guy uh, that played right down the street from me at Oxon Hill, and, and he did not recruit me. And so it drove me to play um, as hard as I could and put up as many numbers as I could to prove him wrong. And then when I became a pro, Patrick invited me because we were teammates to come play at Georgetown. And I would go over there and hoop and we'd have all kinds of pros in the gym. And um, one day I, I was shooting too much. <laughs> and uh, he was sitting up in the, in the top part where you could barely see him. You could see his glasses and you could kind of see his silhouette. And it was like a bear sitting up there. And I was shooting too many shots. And um, he just started going off on me. And there were some 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 words that I can't repeat said to my direction, in my direction. And what I didn't understand was uh, it was respect for me and that he had been watching me. And 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 I, I gathered that he was testing me. And so I'm I'm like the outsider there. There's, you know, Alonzo Mornings there, Patrick's there, all Georgetown guys there, and a few pros. And um, I didn't realize that he was, you know, telling me like I'm watching you. And um I think the moment for me that that summed it up was once I got into coaching and, I, you know, I, I was moving around uh, a bit and hadn't had a chance to spend a lot of time back in D.C., uh, but I was there for a scouting. Um, I was scouting Georgetown's practice. And at that time, he had retired and his son, uh, JT3, had taken over. And he, uh, Coach Thompson came out to talk to me. And he sat there and talked to me for a long, long time. And he just told me how proud he was of me and he'd been watching me and he had always been rooting for me. And it messed me up because I had no idea that someone like Coach Thompson would take the time to consider someone like me and that he had been watching me since I was in like the ninth or 10th grade. And here I was in my forties and he was recounting all that. So when he passed, there was a ton of emotions um, for me because I'm not quite sure if there's a John Thompson around anymore that's going to have the impact on young people the way that he had an impact on me and many others in, in the PG County, um, D.C. metro area. No, it's, that's remarkable. And uh, Monty, last thing, it is such a short window between the end of your season yeah. You go right to the draft, free agency. You go to Summer League for a few days. You're back in Phoenix now. 
And like you look at your calendar and you're like, geez, we, we got, like, training camp is not far off. What is it between now and training camp that you want to do, you want to go see, that you want to read? Do you have like any goals or are you just you just decompressing for a little bit? You know, I've had these talks with Robert. I've talked to James. Um, to be honest with you, Woj, I have no idea. You know, this is new territory for everyone. And I think we're all going to have to really uh, be honest that we're not quite sure what to do. We got to listen to our players, listen to the medical staff, listen to sports science people and, and, and get a lot of help on how we reintegrate um, the players into the gym and not only the players, uh, the coaching staff. You know, I've talked to the staff and just told them to get the time they need to fill up their cup so that they can be ready to you know, give out the things that they need to once we start up again. But I have no idea. You know, I, I feel pretty poor saying that, um, that I don't know, you know how to navigate this, but I think we're going to try to err on the side of being cautious um, in our situation uh, with Devin. You know, he went straight from the finals right to Tokyo to play in the Olympics. And he, you know, I'm watching him play. He's guarding 94 feet. He's taking charges. He's <laughs> he's all over the place as book tends to be when he's because he plays so doggone hard. And I'm sitting there thinking it's not just the physical toll that we have to manage. It's the emotional toll that I think we have to be mindful of when we all get back together again. Yeah, it. It's a tired league, and you talk players, coaches, front offices, staff. It it has been a sprint, really, since the beginning of the pandemic. It feels like it's been, feels like it's just been a blur. Uh, I know, I imagine you feel the same way. But yeah. I hope you do get some downtime here, Monty. I appreciate you as always coming on, uh, visiting on the podcast. It's always enlightening, and uh, and uh, hopefully, um, hopefully, you get away and unplug a little bit here. Well, Woj, I have to admit, though, that this is a get-to and not a got-to. You know, I'm thankful that I have a job. I'm thankful that I'm one of 30 uh, in the world that get to do what I do. And so, yeah, it has been tough, but, you know, nobody's going off to war. You know, I, I can I can think of a, a few more things that are a lot tougher than having a job in the NBA. So in that regard, I'm thankful that I get to do this. Absolutely. Monty, thank you again, and, and I know we'll catch up soon. Thank you, Woj. Appreciate you, man. Today's interview with Monty Williams has been fueled by Gatorade. Whatever path you take to greatness, Gatorade is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, Phoenix Suns coach, Monty Williams. You can listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also listen to the Adam Schefter podcast with my friend Adam Schefter, the Low Post with Zach Lowe, and the Hoop Collective hosted by Brian Windhorst. We'll catch you next time.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.